Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Narina DeSoma, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Peoria. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Narina and I will discuss IR in private practice with Dr. Venu Vadlamudi, an interventional radiologist at Association of Alexandria Radiologists. Narina, I feel like this topic is going to be something our listeners really like because it's the first time we dive into beyond just the pathologies that we treat in IR and into what it's like to be an interventional radiologist and have a good discussion on that. What what were the things that you really liked about uh, this interview? Oh, I completely agree. One of my favorite parts of this interview was addressing the... um, the post elephant in the room on SIR and just talking a little bit more more about the realities of um, transitioning from training into real life. Um, So that was, that was fantastic. And I think the, our listeners are really going to enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that's a big topic. And for our listeners, we'll make sure we, we uh, show a link to that post uh, or, or how you can go see it just to get a little more information about the big conversations going on in IR as a workplace and not just as a residency or a fellowship. And I agree. I think that that this is a topic, private practice specifically, that we really, that you and I have talked about off air, that really needs to be covered. The discussion needs to be had in a way that students can get a better idea of the different things that are out there, the different kinds of practices or ways to practice IR beyond just academics. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. And what a great opportunity for us to put it on the podcast and make it accessible for everyone. So thank you for listening in, everyone. And here it is. Dr. Vadlamudi, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you guys for having me. And, and you know, I have to say right off the bat, I'm, I'm really impressed with, you know, what the medical students, the resident fellow section has been doing over these last few years. Honestly, I feel uh, way out of place in a sense of, of what I was doing at that sort of stage of my training. So kudos to all of you. Well, thank you. We'd love to hear a bit about how you got here. What made you decide to become an interventional radiologist? Sure. Great question. Uh, as I was just alluding to, uh, you know, I kind of felt uh, out of sorts relative to, you know, the degree of exposure and knowledge that um, students and, and trainees have, you know, now. Uh, I discovered IR really, I would say, far later than probably what's commonplace nowadays, especially now with the new IRDR residency. Uh, I discovered IR really more as an intern uh, during my transitional year internship. Um, During my third and fourth year of medical school, I did some radiology rotations, ultimately really liked radiology, but I have to be honest, I liked it probably more so for diagnostic radiology without really knowing a lot about interventional radiology. So I entered in and matched into radiology sort of based on incomplete knowledge of sort of the the true expanse of radiology as a whole, of course, including interventional. And so during my internship, uh, I had an early elective month. I think it was in August or September or something of the uh, year. And uh, so I decided to see if I could do and ultimately was able to do 
an IR elective as an intern, really to get a sense of if this would be something I would enjoy and really to learn more about it, especially knowing that I was going to be going into radiology residency. And really within the first few days, uh, I was amazed that, wow, these are all these kind of minimally invasive procedures that uh, IR is able to do. And, you know, I remember one day in particular, it might have been my third or fourth day on the rotation. Uh, on the one hand, I was helping uh, who's now, you know, my mentor for IR, Dr. P.C. Shetty. Uh, I was helping with him with a, a trauma case. And uh, across the hall, um, the neurointerventionalist was doing uh, a brain aneurysm coiling. And I, I said, what's that? You know, I, I was really amazed that, wow, we can not only do things throughout the body, but look at these things that are happening in the brain. So that's kind of how I had that early exposure to ultimately decide on becoming an interventional radiologist. What an amazing journey. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, uh, like you mentioned before, the growth of this field is fascinating. And it's great to see how people like yourself got interested, as you know, myself and Noreen are both interested in doing the same thing. So, Dr. Vadlamudi, have you always worked in private practice? Yes, uh, I can uh, say yes to that in the sense that uh, I'm in my truly my first real job in the real world. So after all that time of training and everything of that, um, this is my first job. So I've been in this practice uh, here in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, for just about four years now, and it's a private practice group. So given that this has been my only job, yes, I've always been in private practice. Um, speaking of which, what is the structure of your current private practice? Sure. Um, we are in a larger radiology practice that includes diagnostic and interventional radiology. Uh, our division for interventional radiology has uh, seven interventional radiologists for a total of six full-time positions, so six FTEs. Uh, so that means that technically I have six partners, uh, although again, based on our workload, it's a total of five additional full-time interventional radiology positions. Um, all of us in the IR section do practice full-time interventional radiology. Um, we have fairly sizable section for, you know, I think a lot of private practice groups, which allows us certain freedoms and flexibilities. Um, for example, we have different areas of interest, um, different professional aspirations. And so having a practice of this size, specifically the interventional division, allows us to pursue a lot of those interests. That sounds like an incredible opportunity for your group. Um, do you have uh, any uh, DRs in your group? Yes. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, our group is, um, last I checked, I think it's around 29 radiologists total. So as I mentioned, um, a total of seven of us are six full-time positions in the interventional section with the remainder being diagnostic radiology partners. Interesting. So when you say that you're all full-time positions, does that mean you guys are doing 100% IR in your job or do you end up doing call for diagnostic? No. So um, we do 100% IR for our, our positions. Um, you know, in terms of uh, our sort of practice and sort of setup, um, aside from, from the interventional radiology side of things, the diagnostic responsibilities that we have. Um, we cover three hospitals at which we are the directors and, and run the non-invasive vascular lab. So that is part of our responsibility, reading the vascular non-invasive studies. Um, we do read some of the CTAs and MRAs, uh, although with our particular 
peripheral arterial disease practice, we don't really utilize a lot of that. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Um, but really, when it comes specifically to diagnostic radiology, you know, call shifts or coverages, no, we're not specifically assigned or responsible for those. That's, you know, the, the purview of our diagnostic partners in the same way that IR is a purview of the interventionalists. Interesting. And one thing I'll just mention for our listeners, that your practice, or I believe you might manage the Twitter account for uh, your, your practice there in Alexandria, which is at AlexCVIR, which we'll include a link to in the uh, show notes. Uh, so with that being said, how about the IR call? How, how do you guys structure that in, within your practice? Sure. So as, you know, as I mentioned, there's really six of us as far as full-time positions. So really call ends up being between one and five to one and six kind of depends a little bit on uh, who may be away or out of town or things of that sort. But uh, in general, that's where the call runs. So that's across the board, whether it's uh, weekday calls kind of Monday through Thursday um, or weekend calls, which is typically Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, That's kind of the split. So that's, very equally distributed. It's uh, very democratic in that sense. So it's not that a senior partner has less call and a junior partner has more call. It's really equal across the board, kind of regardless of what the starting point is. That's a great perspective for um, aspiring interventional radiologists um, to know. So Dr. Badlamudi, how is all of this different than the academic practices you've worked at or trained at? Well, I think one um, big difference in a sense is that given that we're in a private practice setup and we don't have trainees, um, really in a lot of sense, you're sort of your own fellow or resident. Uh, you're dealing with, of course, calls primarily. You're doing the triage to figure out what needs to be dealt with and in what order. Um, and so a lot of that, I think, you know, during training is part of that training uh, as, a, as a resident or certainly as a fellow um, you know, during IR um, training. And so that's kind of, I think, one of the biggest differences in that sense is that you're primarily dealing with things. Um, that being said, you also, again, when it comes down to, you know, performing the actual, you know, procedures and cases or seeing patients in the clinic, uh, again, you're primarily responsible for, you know, that work. Um, I think early on when I first started, uh, just because all of us will, will have gone through, you know, an academic training um, setting as far as our background. You know, you're used to sort of seeing that, you know, you're used to a certain hierarchy of interns and residents and fellows uh, and, and really kind of working up that food chain, if you will. Um, and, you know, kind of getting used to having really a lot of people around, generally speaking. And so when I first got into the practice here, that was, you know, a change, certainly just from coming out of training, coming out of academia into a private practice setting to sort of realize that, well, you know, I need to be able to deal with things and make those decisions and make those calls. But that being said, you know, our practice really for, certainly for me when I started and any of, you know, new partners that we may come across, always make it clear that we want people to sort of talk with one another. And it's not simply just because you're the new person or not the new person. Um, we, we do that actually all day long. We, we discuss cases with one another. Uh, just earlier today, I was discussing a case um, with one of my senior partners who's been doing IR for about 25 years and you know, asked my opinion about a case of uh, lumbar puncture with intrathecal chemotherapy. You know, it's not necessarily 
a very complex case in a sense, but he wanted my opinion on, on a patient um, that he was potentially going to be doing that for. And so, um, you know, I think that's really kind of part of how we continually learn from one another and you know, push one another to kind of um, and, you know, expand our abilities and horizons. And, you know, that, that part I know also exists certainly in academic practice. Um, but I think in our private practice, perhaps that's yet another tool that we, you know, further utilize. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, th- that lifelong learner sort of idea, it, it exists in all of medicine, but in interventional radiology with the, the, the movement towards new procedures and, and new uh, interventions, there's Def, there's, that's definitely an important aspect. So that's great. You have that uh, environment with your your colleagues uh, in your practice. Uh, so one thing I was going to to ask is, um, you, you know, you mentioned the difference with having no fellows uh, and how or, or residents or interns working with you. Um, so it, do you, does your practice uh, use like mid levels or anything like that to sort of um, ease the burden of of uh, consults or or things like that for, for all of you? Yeah, good question. Uh, we do. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we cover three different hospitals. Uh, at our busiest hospital, we do have mid-levels. Uh, we have uh, four of them in total. And so they sort of help split the work between uh, the clinic side, outpatient procedures or outpatient-related uh, issues, and then inpatient side of things, including consults. So really kind of help us multitask in a lot of ways. Um, certainly, there are going to be conditions, diseases, scenarios that they're going to be quite comfortable with. Uh, and then, of course, there's going to be, you know, scenarios that they're not going to be comfortable with, no matter their experience. And so that's where, of course, they know to, you know, reach out to us much earlier or right away uh, to kind of go through that. Uh, so that's at, at one of our hospitals, like I said, the sort of busiest of our, our hospitals at Alexandria Hospital. At the other two hospitals we cover, uh, we don't have that. Um, at one of them, we're hopefully going to have a mid-level starting with us soon. Um, but again, in that sense, you're kind of your own mid-level too. Um, so you sort of have to deal with things, you know, whatever they may come across. Yeah. And I know uh, one of your new partners, Dr. Jeffrey Chick. Yeah. I'd worked with him at U of M uh, about a year or two ago. And uh, when we interviewed him for the podcast, I asked him, how has it been being in private practice compared to academia? And he's like, and he said, you know, I have to get out of the control center, be busy all day. I'm so much more tired than I was, (laughs) which I thought, you know, obviously there's a bit of joking to that, but it does seem like, you know, you do have to wear a few more hats in private practice. You do. Yeah. In fact, he and I were just talking, he was on call this past weekend and uh, we, we did a uh, stroke case together early this morning. And so uh, it sounded like he had a busy weekend as it was, you know, a couple of pulmonary embolism cases and a few other things that he was really, you know, dealing with and running around quite a bit. Um, and, you know, he kind of made that sort of same comment as I made earlier, where you're your own fellow. So he's dealing with all sorts of phone calls. However, some may seem... Uh, you know, easier to to push off or triage for later. Others are certainly much more critical. And so you're kind of really dealing with a lot, which, um, I, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, some of those differences to academia, that's sometimes one of those differences is that that buffer layer, if you will, is is really not present here. <laughs> yeah, 
Understandably so. So you mentioned a procedure you had this morning. So could you kind of run us through, Dr. Vadamuni, what your usual uh, week looks like? Yeah. So a typical week is, you know, Monday through Friday. Um, I usually get to the hospital by about 7.30 in the morning. So um, depends on kind of who you ask. That's probably later, certainly than most trainees, you know, so that's sort of a, a bit different. Um, others may say, wow, that still sounds early. So again, it's all perspective, but uh, usually I get there by, by 7.30. And, um, you know, one of the nice things, again, of doing IR full-time in this practice is uh, five days a week, I do procedures, see patients, see consults. Um, and so, that part is really all, you know, very rewarding. Um, just constantly, not only doing things, but thinking on your feet, coming up with creative solutions, of course, which is part of what's, you know, wonderful about IR. Um, each of the days, you know, we, we have a, a little bit different model than, than some places where uh, we don't have sort of a, a dedicated or partitioned clinical time for specifically clinic patients. So, uh, really, every day we see patients, whether outpatients or inpatients, but in, in that clinical model. But nonetheless, it's sort of on a, on a daily basis again. So really five days a week, that's sort of what that schedule looks like. And typically do cases till about 6 o'clock, 6.30 at night um, on, on most days. Some days will be a little bit earlier. Other days certainly can be much later than that. Um, so all in all, probably about between 7.30 and then by the time you're wrapping up things and cleaning up dictations and whatnot, probably leaving around between 6.30 to 7.30 on average. Yeah. That's great that each day is filled with such variety of practice. Um, what are your most common procedures during your week? Uh, during the week, it, it a bit depends for all of us. As I mentioned earlier, because we have a, a big enough section that we have sort of um, subspecialty interests and things of that sort. So uh, for me, you know, uh, the areas that I have additional sort of volume or interest in um, include oncology, a lot of the sort of types of cases and diseases that you guys may be familiar with. So things like ablation or Y90, uh, less often nowadays chemoembolization, but you know, nonetheless, those sort of um, uh, oncology-related procedures and patients. Um, another area, simply because of my background and interest, I did an additional fellowship in neurointerventional radiology. So I do a fair bit of neurointerventional radiology, and that can be anything from diagnostic cerebral angiograms to you know, carotid stenting, or even in the acute phase, something like an acute stroke, uh, which has been part of our practice for well before I joined. Actually, it's been in the practice since uh, back from 2000. So kind of very lucky to walk into something that was already pretty mature on that end. Um, so those are sort of some of the common things that we come across um, one of the things I was sort of, you know, really uh, astonished by, in a sense, was that uh, the, the hospitals in our practice are, are really not very big. The biggest of our hospitals, which is Alexandria Hospital, part of the Inova system here, um, is about 320 beds. So relative to where you guys are probably seeing and rotating or even considering as far as rotations, uh, you know, for training programs, that's that's tiny. You know, when you compare, as Ben, as you pointed out, well, you were at University of Michigan, which is around 1,100 beds, you know, because I, that's where I did my neurointerventional fellowship. Um, you know, that's a behemoth relative to what, you know, the, the, the kinds of hospitals that we cover. Yet, we see a, really a significant amount of um, acute pathology. Uh, I, I feel like we see 
for example, a lot of pulmonary embolism here in this community for whatever reason, and they come in and they're sick patients, you know, and so that's part of how we not only can help more patients with these acute processes, but at the same time, we have this little bit of a unique um, setup where even as a private practice, we participate or involved in and interested in, in research. So uh, our practice has done a lot with PE research, and we're going to be on a few upcoming trials as well, so kind of continuing those efforts. Uh, so that's sort of part of what we incorporate into our daily practice. Uh, and again, you know, that just as one example happens to be something that we see kind of a fair bit. So we end up doing probably a couple of those cases per week, uh, which is probably unusual for the relative size of the hospitals that we cover. Yeah, that's that's interesting because, you know, I, often people think of going into private practice and, oh, I'll never have to do research again. But the, the research you're doing is to to help your patients in your specific area where you have an increased population of, you know, PEs that you treat. So that's, that's really awesome to see. Yeah, I think, I think in this practice, and this is really um, historical in a lot of sense, you know, the, the origins of this uh, particular practice that I'm in, um, you know, really started with uh, Dr. Katzen, Barry Katzen, uh, and later on, Dr. Van Breda, who's my senior most partner. So really a lot of background and, and history and, and just bottom line sort of clinical strength of that practice, you know, from day one, it was always a clinical consultative practice. And part of that practice included um, research and trials and trying to further the, you know, the practice of medicine. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, our practice has been involved in acute stroke interventions uh, since, you know, I looked it up in our uh, system. Uh, the first case was back in the fall of 2000, which is uh, relatively ancient, if you really kind of think of it in the, in the stroke world. I mean, nowadays, there's a lot more knowledge uh, of stroke, uh, you know, within the interventional communities, a lot that can be done because of so many positive trials over the last several years. But going back that far, th those were really kind of primitive days where at best you could get a microcatheter out and drip some um, urokinase. That was, you know, what they used to use back then. And so... Yeah. Uh, that was really shortly after a particular trial had come out. But again, I think shows that, you know, whether it was doing the research or being directly influenced by the research, you know, that, that's always been a part of the practice, always trying to push forward and offer the best and the latest that we can for our patients. And, and again, it's still based in this community uh, setting. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting in IR to see how often the pioneers of the field are not exclusively in academia, you know, and I think that's a topic that we're hoping to explore on the podcast in the future is talking with, you know, some of these pioneers and getting more of the history. So for those patients that are referred to you or that you're actively managing, um, do you have a standalone clinic where you see all of your patients? Yeah. So, so in um, our hospitals, we see patients, you know, informal like clinic settings. So, meaning that it's, you know, a separate area. It's, you know, just like any other clinic or doctor's office. You have a table, you have the computer, you have chairs for them, and you sit and you talk and you go through, you know, whatever it is, whatever the condition, whether it's a PAD patient and talking about what's going on with them um, or you know, oncology and other, you know, fibroids, for example, uh, we see all of those patients in clinic. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the 
kind of idea that, well, it's just simply somebody orders a procedure and you just do it, uh, at least certainly in our practice, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of fit our model. Our model has always been a clinical practice, clinical model, including on the outpatient side. I appreciate that model, and I feel that's certainly the future um, for aspiring interventional radiologists. What are the things you see in, in clinic most often, then, Dr. Vadimidi? Sure. Uh, some of the common scenarios and patients that, that I see in clinic, um, as I mentioned earlier, they do a fair amount of oncology, so we see a lot of those patients. And again, a lot of those patients are going to be seeing you for a long time, whether for imaging or clinical follow-up. Um, Another sort of group of patients I see, as I mentioned, are patients for various neuro conditions, whether brain aneurysms or, for example, for our stroke patients, I follow all of them in our clinic to do our 90-day follow-ups. That's part of a very important clinical metric that we want to measure. And so I see all of those patients back um, just to see what they're, you know, how they're doing and what's going on with them so we can figure out how our program is doing clinically. Um, then sometimes you see, uh, uh, frankly, a little bit more unusual type patients. Um, I have this sort of particular subgroup of patients that I see and treat that have um, idiopathic CSF leaks. So they have leakage somewhere in those, you know, generally in the spine uh, of CSF and they get CSF hypotension and headaches. And so I have a group of patients that I see and treat with uh, what are called large volume blood patch. And so that's a kind of very unique population that I see in clinic. Uh, and then certainly I think another very common group of patients we see are patients with um, peripheral vascular disease, whether arterial or venous or both sometimes. Uh, so that's a very common part of our practice as far as um, types of patients we see. We manage a lot of them medically, uh, but often if they need intervention, whether they're somebody like a claudicant versus somebody who's got uh, wounds and ulcers, those are the patients that we want to try to not only see, but also try to help where we can. Interesting. Before we jump into PAD um, sure. and talking a little more about that, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that subpopulation you deal with. And uh, you said it was idiopathic. CSF leaks. CSF yeah. leaks. Okay. Yep. So how did that start for you? Because I know, for example, in a previous episode, um, we spoke with Dr. Uh, Leah Braswell at Nationwide Children's, and mm -hmm. she has a similar thing that's happened in her practice where she's known as the aneurysmal bone cyst person. Sure. Yeah, that's become her practice. And uh, she said it kind of just fell to her because it was a sort of a, a niche interest she had. So for you, Dr. Vathamudi, how did that become your, your subgroup that you, you treat? Yeah, um, so the great question, and really, it came out of you know my my fellowship training at University of Michigan. I worked with uh, one of the attendings there uh, who had a has a similar background of, of being trained in both body and neurointerventional. Um, Joe Gimetti. yeah, and he's so, an awesome guy. Yeah, and I think you, I'm sure you might have worked with him or talked with him. Mm -hmm. And so it was you know one of these procedures that, you know, he kind of helped to develop over there for this unique group of patients. And, you know, I got to learn that alongside with him. And so when I first started in the practice here, um, you know, there was a, a referral for, by a neurologist for a patient. And just in reading the, the history, the, the actual referral was for a non-invasive duplex study. It was for a temporal artery study on a patient. But in reading the history, and then I ended up reaching out to the neurologist and talking about the case, I found that it sounded like 
this patient had this potentially idiopathic leakage of cerebrospinal fluid. And so I said, well, you know, I, I you know, happened to have trained and learned about this very unusual procedure for, frankly, a very unusual condition. And, you know, I, I'd be happy to see that patient uh, in, in clinic and we can talk about things and see if that might be something we can offer to help them. And so that kind of was the, you know, initial uh, nidus for this subgroup of patients that I see. And over time, I've, you know, worked with a variety of neurologists and a few neurosurgeons as well um, and end up sort of seeing these patients. And so, you know, it, like anything, sometimes it starts as a trickle. You get a couple of patients here and there. Uh, but over time, you start to see more and more of these patients. And one way or the other, uh, you know, the word gets out in a sense. And, and you know, much like uh, the, the doc you were talking about, who sort of is the aneurysmal bone cyst person, <laughs> uh, you, you kind of can become this, you know, person. You sort of develop this niche area, yeah. uh, which is, you know, always interesting, but also certainly very, very gratifying because, you know, it's, it's something that, to my knowledge, wasn't being offered at all in this area. And so I'm very happy just to, you know, offer that, that you know, kind of clinical service for this particular group of patients. It's cool to see how that works and how you're able to collaborate with another specialty and without, you know, it becoming like a turf war or something like that, you show what you can do as a, uh, you know, dual trained neuro IR and body IR person. And um, I really like hearing about that. So can you, you know, without getting too into the weeds, explain what this blood patch uh, procedure is? Sure. Uh, so a common scenario, just to sort of give some context, um, if a patient has a, a, a lumbar puncture, let's say it's just a diagnostic lumbar puncture for whatever, you know, indication, uh, sometimes what can happen, you know, that's a very commonly performed procedure, but sometimes what can happen is uh, at the site where there's actual puncture of the dura, where they do the CSF, um, you can have a little bit of leakage of the CSF. And the CSF acts as basically a hydraulic cushion for the brain and the spinal cord. And so with that leakage of CSF, there's just a little bit less fluid around the brain and spinal cord, and it causes relative sort of tension or stress or strain on the meninges. And so that manifests often as uh, headaches, especially positional type of headaches where they have relief with laying down, it gets a little bit worse once they start sitting up or start moving around. And so often what's done for patients who have had a lumbar puncture and get a what's called post-LP headache is they'll get a little what's called a blood patch. So in the epidural space at the spot where the lumbar puncture was performed, so just shy of hitting the dura, you inject a little bit of blood somewhere between 8 to 20 cc's, depends on sort of who does it, but um, probably on average 10 to 12 cc's is probably what's injected. And it's blood that sort of sits in that epidural space, causes a degree of irritation. You know, blood, when it's outside of the blood vessels, not only coagulates, but it's often very irritating. And so we want that intentional irritation to occur so that you cause a little bit of, you know, plugging up of that hole where that fluid is leaking. Mm -hmm. So that's the very common scenario, relatively speaking, to these idiopathic patients where it may not be clear where their fluid is leaking from. Or in some cases, maybe we have a good idea. Uh, I've had a few postpartum patients that have presented, even one patient was uh, over a year after her um, lumbar puncture, was an epidural with an inadvertent lumbar puncture, and started to have symptoms. And so 
sometimes we have a, you know, a little bit better idea of where to target the blood, but oftentimes we may not. And so what we do is now we're just employing the tools and tricks of IR just in a different way. So we access the epidural space uh, pretty low down, usually around the L5 to S1 level um, with the needle. And so using Seldinger technique, you access the epidural space with the needle. We, we inject a little bit of air. There's a certain loss of resistance uh, followed by contrast. You want to kind of make sure you're not in the uh, CSF space, the thecal sac. And then from there, you put a wire, you exchange the needle for a sheath, just like if you were inside of an artery or a vein. And wow. then over the wire, through the sheath, in that epidural space, you run a catheter under fluoroscopic guidance. And depending on how high you need to go, uh, the highest I typically will go is about the C4 level. So that catheter goes all the way from the L5-S1 epidural space in the posterior epidural space up to the C4 level. Uh, and then from there, you take the patient's own blood, um, often large volumes. So minimum for me is usually 60 to 80 cc's of blood. Uh, and then you inject that blood all throughout that posterior epidural space to cause irritation and scarring of wherever that leakage may be occurring. So that's kind of the, the large volume blood patch in a nutshell. Wow, that's phenomenal. I can really visualize that as you, uh, as you explain it. So Dr. Badlambudi, um, let's talk specifically about peripheral arterial disease or PAD. Sure. For those of our listeners that haven't heard our PAD episode with Dr. Madassari, I highly recommend going back and listening to it as we covered a lot of the basics of PAD management there. So when it comes to PAD, what differences are there in a private practice from an academic center? Um, you know, probably a little bit hard to answer in the sense of, you know, even within academic centers or private practices, there's probably going to be some differences. I think, you know, one of the key things, certainly in our practice, um, that's very important, not only for our management of our PAD patients, but, but oftentimes getting those referrals in the first place is, um, the non-invasive vascular lab. So, uh, probably you guys have heard this from, from other participants, other speakers before, but really, it's it's not even so much that it's a control thing. It's really what it is is that that's where you can really get a lot of information and help guide the, the management of these patients. And so for us, that's where we oftentimes derive a lot of that patient volume is from the non-invasive lab. Um, comparing to, you know, academic centers, um, they are probably in mo more cases um, going to have maybe vascular surgery or vascular medicine running the non-invasive lab. So that might be an internal struggle that they face. Uh, so again, something that's a little bit different, at least in our specific practice. Um, but I think, you know, at the same time, regardless, uh, you know, sort of how those patients get to IR and academia versus private practice, you know, we probably generally have a, a similar idea of how to manage these patients. Um, you know, it really boils down to, well, what's going on with them clinically, what needs to be done, if, if anything, as far as any kind of procedural interventions. Um, and I think the key to, to understand whether it's PAD or any other disease is, well, not just simply I can do certain things with the catheter, it's do I need to do that thing with the catheter? What's going on with this patient? Maybe the best bet, for example, is if they're, you know, a claudicant, but it's really not so terrible, um, it would be very rare that we would necessarily push to do an angiogram with possible intervention. We're going to start with, 
you know, risk factor modification for all patients, of course, but also, you know, supervised exercise programs, which there's great data behind, you know, are they on aspirin? Are they on a statin? If not, you know, those are certainly things that we're comfortable to start. You know, are they on Pletol, for example? Um, so starting with the, that medical management, and I'm, I'm sure Kumar and others have probably gone through some of this um, with your group, so I don't want to rehash everything there. Um, but, you know, I think in, in that sense of, you know, those differences, again, between private practice and academia, um, you know, in, in some ways, it's probably not that different at all. You know, I, I certainly when talking with uh, Dr. Mattisari, um, who is in an academic practice, but we can talk very, not just openly, but frankly, evenly, because we still deal with the same kinds of patients. You know, if we're dealing with wounds and, and limb salvage versus claudicants, you know, we're kind of tackling them in similar ways. That's also one of the beauties of IR and kind of the IR community is learning from one another. There may be tips and tricks that he's done that I haven't tried or I didn't know about or vice versa. And so that's kind of part of what we can gain even though we're in these sort of, if you will, two separate worlds of academics and private practice. That's great to hear about the collaboration between academic and uh, private practice uh, interventional radiologists. Um, so although we haven't discussed critical limb ischemia on our podcast yet, and this isn't the complete focus of this episode, my understanding is uh, CLI or critical limb ischemia is considered an acute and more severe type of peripheral arterial disease uh, as determined by clinical indicators and is usually Rutherford class four to six. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Typically we consider Rutherford four is, is certainly resting pain at a minimum five and six is when you start to have wounds and ulcerations. So when it comes to CLI patients, are they usually found when you see them in the office? And what about more mild PAD? Sure. Uh, so kind of a mix, you know, um, I would say some of the CLI patients we see come from wound care centers that are at some of the hospitals that we cover, for example. Uh, some of them come directly from, especially podiatry. We have a very good relationship with a lot of our podiatrists, and so they will often call us about patients or send us those patients uh, right away because, again, you're now dealing with wound and tissue loss versus claudication or, you know, asymptomatic peripheral arterial disease. Um, you know, I think it's very different in that sense. Sometimes they come through the ER, you know, that they've sort of ignored their, you know, disease process for a long time. Maybe they've sort of, uh, sort of, you know, pushed their way through the claudication phase or the rest pain phase and unfortunately come when there's a bad wound. And so sometimes those are the patients we have to deal with uh, coming through from the emergency department side of things. Um, in some cases, we will get referrals from, you know, other, you know, vascular uh, specialties, such as vascular surgery. Uh, we try to collaborate wherever we can. Again, the goal is to help these patients out. And I think one um, really positive thing in, in the last few years with CLI is that, um, I think it really can highlight, you know, some of the skill sets of, of IR and the dedication it takes for these patients in these cases that, you know, what we're not just, you know, knowledgeable or trained or skilled in vascular and endovascular care, but, you know, I think it shows that, you know, these particular cases, which can be oftentimes um, grueling cases, you're spending a lot of time and effort, you're trying to get one particular vessel open because that's what's going to help the wound, for example, 
using those angiosome concepts. Um, you know, that, that that's where IR perhaps has the ability to show that we're not out of the vascular arena, if you will, because I think oftentimes that seems to be sort of the, um, the, the, the line, if you will, that oh, IR is not really doing vascular, but I think the reality is no, IR is still doing a lot of vascular. Yeah. I want to ask another question about that, but before I do, mm-hmm. you mentioned before how you guys, in your practice, you have control of the non-invasive uh, vascular lab. Yeah, where you do those um, diagnostic procedures. Is that a place where you do some shared decision making with the patients where, you know, you're, you're there doing the, the procedure and you can see, you know, what sort of occlusions or stenosis there is. And then you can say, okay, you know, we have this now, let's set a time to come to the clinic and follow up or what sort of happens there? How do you go from a non-invasive procedure to making a decision with the patient to move forward? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, I I look at the non-invasive lab as really an opportunity for um, basically every patient, you know, let's say specifically within the arterial side of things. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, the tech will come in and we have the the non-invasive vascular techs come and review the cases with us sort of regardless, um, you know, and, and, regardless of the presentation of the patient or why they got or who they got referred by or anything of that sort, um, the tech will come and, you know, kind of present the case to us. And so sort of in a similar way, and this is what I push them to do is to present me the case before I look at any kind of imaging, you know? And so if they tell me it's an 85 year old lady that uh, she sometimes gets leg pain at night, uh, sometimes during the day, it's not particularly when she's walking, but sometimes it is, you know, to me right away, it doesn't sound like it's going to be, you know, much if any kind of peripheral arterial disease. It may be a neuropathy, you know, maybe she's diabetic with neuropathy, but it doesn't sound like she's necessarily having claudication or rest pain. And they certainly right away will tell you, okay, the patient does not have any wounds. And so with that information, then I look at the study with the, with the tech. And when I see, okay, there's really good flow all the way down into the feet and the toes, well, that matches what I thought I was going to see based on the clinical description. So oftentimes you can figure out clinically what the pictures ought to look like. And so that's what we do for all patients. Now, even in that sort of a scenario where it's really a you know, beautifully normal non-invasive exam, that there's not any kind of a significant peripheral arterial disease going on, I still take the time to go talk to that patient. Now, I don't need to have a formal clinical evaluation, bring them into clinic for 20 minutes or something like that. This is really just sitting with them, hearing them out a little bit just for a few minutes, telling them, well, this is what the test looks like and this is what it shows. So it doesn't seem like we're dealing with an artery problem as far as what's going on. And we talk about, well, what are potential next steps? Hey, have we you know, tried anything before or has your doctor who's referred to here tried anything before for maybe your diabetic neuropathy? Maybe that's what it sounds like. And maybe they've, you know, not necessarily tried something for that. So that's part of what I can talk and tease out of the patient in in that conversation. And then I can put all of that together to talk to the referring doctor and say, this patient came in for this. This is what we found. It doesn't appear to be a peripheral artery problem. However, maybe they have a neuropathy, it sounds like. Maybe you ought to try that or we'd be happy to help. And so that's, I think, how we can help patients 
even though it, it's really in, in, in a good way, it means that they don't need me for an endovascular procedure, but maybe they need me to just sort of help collect the data points and put it all together as a vascular expert so I can say, well, this is not a vascular problem that we're dealing with. It seems like that approach in the non-invasive lab sort of mitigates the turf war sort of issues that you hear about. Not in a way that, oh, you saw them first, you know, you have dibs or anything like that. More of it allows you to do the clinical management because the patient is there. Right. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I look at, you know, every patient that comes through, you know, there's an opportunity we can help to guide their care. And it may not translate to, you know, whatever the E&M, the evaluation and management and billing yeah. side of things of them showing up in the clinic or whatnot, that's fine. It's, it's whatever the RVUs of that non-invasive exam and report will be. But at the end of the day, that's not what's driving how we're going to do things in our practice. Our practice is about how do we help take care of patients and, you know, with good clinical care and a good reputation behind that, um, you know, patients and referrals and things, they, they not just will come, they continue to come. And so, you know, I think that's what we sort of hold sort of the, at the highest level as far as our importance. Yeah, definitely. So, so with everything you've talked about, uh, it's, it's obviously an, an integrated approach to how you clinically manage these uh, vascular patients or these vascular paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you personally feel like the, the residencies or fellowships out there that don't have a lot of vascular, um, uh, a vascular portion or a PAD portion of their training, do you feel like those trainees are at a, at a disadvantage or do you feel like this is something that can be learned while uh, as an attending? No, I, I think anything can be learned as an attending. I mean, by, by no means, you know, just because you're done with your formalized training, are you done with really being trained or training? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's plenty of things, including peripheral artery and just peripheral vascular disease in general that I've learned uh, in this practice because it's a big part of the practice you know, coming in, I probably had a, I would, I would say fairly mediocre kind of level of comfort with peripheral vascular disease. Um, you know, I could probably differentiate claudication. Uh, I, you know, I could certainly say, well, okay, that's pretty bad vascular disease because there's a wound, but, you know, really a, a level of understanding of not just the non-invasive side of things. Uh, when do I need to consider getting a CTA ahead of time? When do I need some other tests? You know, what what am I doing medically with the patient? Mm-hmm. Really, for me, uh, almost all of that, you know, higher level type of peripheral vascular training has come from both on the job, seeing patients, and of course, supplementing it with talking through cases with my partners and reading things on my own. And so anything, you know, I firmly believe can be learned. It, it doesn't matter where you are and in what stage, you know. Because if you really think about, you know, IR and, and really any field of medicine, um, if you're static to what you learn during training, your knowledge base is only going to be good for maybe five or six years you know, yeah, before you absolutely. start to get out of date. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, it's interesting to think about. I, I bring that up because that's a common discussion online of, 
you know, oh, this, this residency has PAD training and this one doesn't. And, you know, so it's, it's something that I, I find uh, fascinating and I appreciate your opinion on. Yeah. And, and one, one thing I always, you know, find, I mean, I genuinely believe really almost any program, any training program is going to be just fine. Every one of them has pros and cons, you know, but they're, I think, smaller. They're not necessarily huge ones in the sense that like, somebody coming out of X program is going to be horribly undertrained and somebody coming out of uh, another program is going to be extremely well-trained. Mm-hmm. I think you're talking about a very sort of tight spectrum and yeah. all in all people will get good training. I mean, there's a reason these training programs exist and you know, nobody wants to have a training program that's not doing justice to the trainees. Uh, so I think, you know, coming out of any training program will be, just fine in the sense of, you know, it's all about what you put into it and, you know, the time and the effort, um, you know, it, it really, I think that makes the biggest difference as far as what you get out of that formal training period. And then of course, going into practice, there's just ample opportunities for learning more and, you know, furthering that knowledge base and that training and, and learning about things that are, you know, very different, very foreign, perhaps you've never had exposure to, but it doesn't mean you can't learn it. I mean, again, anything can be learned and that's part of what just helps push IR forward. Definitely. And I'd like to talk now about private practice and Mm -hmm. IR and DR. Um, So what are your thoughts on the recent survey results showing that only 25% of self-proclaimed IRs do 100% IR? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, it's a survey with, uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, you have to kind of take it at face value. On the other hand, you have to sort of keep in mind, well, there could be survey bias, you know, as we know in, in science, that's certainly a thing that could occur that, well, are we only getting responses out of people who feel that they're not doing what they could be doing or should be doing or, or not? So in a certain sense, I think broadly, I sort of take it at face value. So if that's if that's the case, that 25 or 30% um, of self-proclaimed IRs do full-time IR, well, then that means that the majority of self-proclaimed IRs are doing some fractionated version, if not a minority of IR, Um, which we know, I think, in general is going to be the case because um, there's lots of different practices and practice models out there. So, um, you know, our practice and our model here is one type, and it's not to say that every other practice is going to have exactly that same type. In fact, it would be probably unlikely that every practice has the exact same model. So I think it does make sense that there's going to be some bell curve distribution of, you know, IR practice uh, among self-proclaimed IRs. Um, Sort of just to almost throw it back to, to you guys being on a different end of the sort of training spectrum, training curve. uh, What were your thoughts on that? particular sort of uh, survey result? Well, one of my main concerns is whether that distribution is by the IR's choice or whether that was sort of put on them by the practice that they've joined. Um, so that's just one concern that I had. Yeah, I think, I think that's a you know, very good um, you know, point. Um, you know, just because somebody's gone through IR, it doesn't always mean that all they want to do is IR. I mean, part of IR includes, of course, a lot of time and, and dedicated training. And 
frankly, dual certification now in diagnostic radiology. Um, and, you know, a lot of people really enjoy that. They want to do some kind of balance. I, you know, I'd like to read studies two days a week and do IR two or three days a week or vice versa. And so that certainly is a very, you know, like valid type of model and decision. And so clearly there's going to be people who are electing for that kind of a, you know, position. Sure. But that being said, I think to your point, there's also probably going to be people who want to be doing a lot more IR than what they're presently doing. And so maybe their particular practice or their model is not necessarily going to truly allow for that, or it may take more time than they were expecting as far as building up that side of things. Um, I think one thing I always sort of emphasize with, um, you know, trainees and people who are, you know, finishing up and getting out into practice. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is it, it takes time, even when joining an established practice. Um, I can tell you in, in, in my case, I anticipated it doesn't necessarily make it any less sort of slow in a sense, but it takes time. And I knew it would probably take at least two years for me to kind of have enough of a sort of independent name and for people to start knowing who I am separately from some of my partners so that I could, you know, start developing, you know, those relationships and, and that does take time. So I think that's a, a particular patience that is very valuable to have because once people start to get to know you and you're in a community and you're working with folks, whether it's PAD or oncology or any number of conditions, um, then you start to see, well, wow, you start to get busy, but it's a little while before you get busy, even in, in, for example, my case of joining a full-time IR practice, being busy with things you want to be busy with. Um, and so in the meantime, it doesn't mean that we don't have our own, you know, fair share of, of paracentesis and abscess strains and everything else. Hey, that that's all IR too. Yeah. I think my feelings are similar to Narina's and something you brought up that's important is the fact that, you know, it is a dual certification. You're you're a board certified diagnostic radiologist and interventional radiologist. And I think that has its uh, pros and cons, obviously, but I think it's better to have more training than less, in my opinion, when it comes to that sort of balance. And I think this leads well into another thing that we were thinking about discussing, which is, you know, for those that are on SIR Connect, there was a recent post about a month ago um, talking about some uh, real world, world perspective as uh, young interventionalists um, from from uh, one of the uh, recent uh, graduates of a IR program uh, that was titled Elephant in the Room. And it seems like there are some that seem not disillusioned, but sort of uh, frustrated, I guess, with the push and pull between being a part of a predominantly DR group and having their IR skills not valued in the way they were during, during their uh, training. Do you feel like that's the best way to explain that post? I think so. Yeah, that, that's, I would say probably my take on kind of the, the, the summary of what that post was getting to. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think, Marina? Anything you want to add? Well, I agree with, with everything that you, that you said. And I, I think it was definitely a valuable um, post for, for, future trainees to have that perspective, especially with the, the new integrated IR pathway, um, there's going to be a huge influx of um, 
interventional radiologists in the market and uh, just understanding a little bit more about the business side of things and the potential um, obstacles that we might face. And so I guess the question for you, Dr. Vatnamudi, is hearing that post and obviously coming from your clinically minded practice, what do you think, what were your thoughts on that post and, and what effect that has on not the post itself, but just sort of that outlook on future IRs? Well, I think the, the post, you know, brought up broader issues of, you know, maybe there is a certain degree of disconnect between training and the jobs and the job market that exists. Um, I think, you know, one thing I've, I've seen over time is um, sometimes, you know, especially at a, you know, uh, medical student level where you're making those critical decisions of frankly, what, you know, pathway am I going down as far as which residency am I picking? You know, that's a, an extremely tough decision. Uh, very few people will change that decision and go ultimately into something different at some point down the line. So most of the time, the decision you, you've made, you go with. But, you know, sometimes I've seen where students will say, well, based on current market trends and, and job opportunities and et cetera, I'm going to pick, you know, I'm going to pick IR. Oh, I think this is going to be great because by the time I get out, it's going to be this or that. And and I think that's, you know, really um, a huge sort of uh, very unpredictable kind of gamble um, to say, okay, I'm going to pick something today based on where I think it's going to be in six, seven or eight years. Um, you know, I, I think very few, you know, financial investing experts would be able to make that kind of a decision based on available data. And so I think, you know, one sort of key theme along those lines is, you know, if you're going to pick IR and, and you know, it's, it's exciting to me to see lots of student interest in IR. And as I mentioned at the outset, you know, just knowing that students know a whole lot more about IR than I did you know, further on into my training. Um, but, you know, I think if you pick something you genuinely enjoy, you know, you're going to ultimately have, I feel, a satisfying career, you know, because you're really doing something you enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to come smooth sailing and you're never going to have any bumps or hiccups. In fact, that should be expected. You will have, you know, hiccups, you know, things you stumble over, hurdles you face, you know, challenges that, you know, that come with the territory. And that's not, again, unique to IR in any way. That's medicine. That's life, you know, that's really. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think if you're still, you're going in to a field that you really are genuinely passionate about, um, maybe the first job you get in, you know, uh, in the real world and out of training is not necessarily, you know, the last job. In fact, Again, statistically, it's probably not going to be. Um, most people end up having a job for a little while and going to something else potentially, and that's very common. So I think kind of just keeping some general principles in mind that you're going into something you really enjoy, you truly believe in what you're doing, I think ultimately you'll find a way to get it to work. Now, if that's you know within the, the confines of the practice you're in, and maybe they're not um, as open-minded to kind of what are the other potentials for IR and what it can do and what it can do for the practice. Well, I think that's part of that 
education and some of those hurdles you probably have to face internally. You know, so those are things where how can I educate my diagnostic colleagues to the, not just the value of IR, but hey, how does IR bring, let's say, downstream revenue if you're talking about the dollars and cents of things? So mm-hmm. if I do a Y90 or an ablation, well, that's not just preoperative imaging that may have been ordered by you as IR or may have been ordered by the primary care or the medical oncologist or somebody else. But ultimately, once you're getting involved in that patient, well, you're certainly making decisions and planning future care based on uh, certainly in a large part imaging criteria. And so that's part of that value you can show the practice that, hey, this is why it's worth it for me to see patients in the clinic because like any other surgeon or referring doc, well, I'm also ordering imaging. So it's not necessarily that, well, I'm not generating RVUs in this half hour period. Well, I'm maybe not at the moment generating that RVU, although there are some, but your downstream revenues from the imaging that's involved, other types of procedures, you know, things that we can try to help these patients with, uh, you know, can certainly mean a lot. And at the end of the day, you're still taking care of patients, which is ultimately, I think, the, the common theme of anybody that's going into IR. You want to do clinical care with patients. I really appreciate some of the points that you brought up, such as the importance of building a practice once you're out of um, residency and finding a group that supports clinical IR career and uh, learning how to promote the value of IR to groups and hospitals when you're signing contracts. Um, What other issues do you see current and future trainees needing to overcome as they plan on coming into the workplace? Um, I think one other thing is, is like not necessarily having the idea or maybe accepting a certain reality that, you know, things are not necessarily going to be handed to you on a, on a silver plate, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you will have to enter into a practice and there's going to be, you know, we call it in our, in our group, we call it the hustle. And so, you know, that you have to like get out there and, you know, do some, maybe you do some dinner talks and educate, you know, referring docs and whatever, disease or, or patient population that you feel you can help, or maybe they're being underserved. Hey, how can we help these patients? Let's educate. Let's do some things. Those are also ways of getting your name and your face out there. So people start to get to know you as somebody who's in the medical community, not just simply somebody who's waiting by the phone saying, how come I'm not getting any consults and referrals? You're out there, you know, educating people and people start to get to know you. Um, I think there's a lot of value even within the hospital of, you know, not just going around on the floors because you're going to do your clinical rounds and things like that, but, you know, really being on the floors so people see you on the floors, you know, just like you see the surgeon on the floor, they should, you know, see you on the floor and vice versa. Uh, you know, the hospitalists, any the ER docs, um, you know, that there's a certain value of not just being the guy who's only ever on the phone, but somebody who's actually showing up and, you know, again, kind of putting your face out there. You know, the, the same sort of struggles in a sense exist for other fields. You know, I think uh, sometimes it may feel like or seem like, well, IR is the only, you know, lonely stepchild that has to deal with issues of you know, not being recognized properly or something like that. That's not necessarily the case. You know, uh, if, if you're a junior general surgeon joining into a a big surgical practice 
hey, guess what? Nobody knows you either. You know, they know the senior surgeon. They know other people. They like the other group or something, you know, whatever might be the local politics and dynamics. But that doesn't mean that, well, you just throw in the towel. Well, at the end of the day, you went into that field. So you went into IR because you believe in IR. So that means that you have to put forth that effort more than necessarily what's your nine to five, if you will. So I think that's kind of one of the other things that, that you know, I really try to emphasize with um, you know, trainees is that there is a lot of effort that needs to be put in. Um, and really, I would say it's not only just when you're starting out. It's, it's really kind of lifelong. But those efforts truly do pay dividends. You know, being available, being knowledgeable, you know, sometimes it's, you know, and I'm sure you guys may hear things like that. Hey, it's just simply that I answer my cell phone, even if I'm not officially on call. Well, yeah, we all do that because, hey, is that something that's not only helpful to the patient, but it shows that I'm available. So I think that's, you know, a valuable part of, again, anybody in medicine, IR not being any kind of exception to that. That's great advice. Yeah, I really like that idea. Because I think it's easy to forget that we're doing this to become our job, our future. And I think that's good career advice, advice for anyone going into any field of medicine or otherwise. And, and I like that idea of the hustle or, or the grind, you know, you, you got to yeah. do those things. Well, uh, for me, one, one advice that I, I still distinctly remember, my, my dad gave me this advice. Um, he's now retired, but he was an anesthesiologist. Uh, so when I was during, doing my um, third and fourth year rotations, you know, he told me three simple rules. He said, show up early, work hard, and stay late. And that's actually, you know, now that I really think of it, that's good life advice, let <laughs> medicine advice. But, but it really has, you know, helped me. And I still apply those rules, if you will, uh, day in and day out because it, it, it makes that difference. And, you know, I think one thing sort of relating back to some of the talk we were talking about, you know, our, we have a Twitter account or things like that. Um, you know, we, we post cases, we want to educate, we want to connect with people, we want to learn from others. I think it's really been a great tool in that sense. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that sometimes, you know, I, I, I actually feel a little bit um, bad about is that, well, maybe if, you know, uh, a medical student who's interested in IR, they see, wow, look at these amazing cases. That's really cool. GI bleeding or fibroid embolization or a tips or whatnot, which, which are, don't get me wrong, very cool cases. But I think, you know, sometimes if we're going to be truly honest, we should also balance it out that, well, I did that tips, but in order to do that tips, I had to make five different phone calls because this patient was just simply being referred for weekly paracentesis. And we really had to like make all these different connections to get people to think about a tips that they weren't really thinking about. And <laughs> that's often that background, that hustle that gets to that case being posted. Yeah, it looks great. And, and, and don't get me wrong. Those are great cases to do, but it's not that that case just simply falls on your lap, you know, because somebody said, Oh, Hey, uh, you know, Venu looks bored. Why don't we send him a tips? <laughs> <laughs> so what you're telling me is your Twitter account should show more G tubes and, and paracentesis. Uh, oh, sure. I, <laughs> you know what? Uh, I'll tell you last week, 
one of the most satisfying cases I had was it was a G-tube case and it was a patient who had a laryngeal cancer, had a prior G-tube, was doing well and then unfortunately had recurrence. Anyway, long and short of it is she needed a G-tube to be placed back again. She had an old incision. She asked, she kind of was hoping, can I please use the old incision? I said, well, it depends and we'll see. And anyway, long and short of it was looked to be appropriate. I cut the scar tissue at the old incision and kind of fell right back into the stomach. And I said, oh, okay, great. So I was able to go straight away to a button tube since she had a well-established tract. And she was very satisfied. That was ultimately the goal was to get her to a button type of G-tube. And she was very happy with it. And I told her, and I was being very honest, I said, that was mostly luck. Uh, That was very little skill. But it's a very satisfying kind of case, even though it's, it's, yes, it's just a G-tube. But it was a really satisfying case because that made a big difference to that patient. Yeah. Yeah, one one piece of advice that I was given early on in, in uh, medical school is whatever field you decide to to do, you better like the the quote unquote boring parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the boring procedures, the the everyday things. Um, and so that's awesome to hear about. Where do you see the field, Doctor Vadimudi, going for private practice IR in the next ten years? Well, I think you know uh, this is probably hard to totally predict, but if I can sort of read the tea leaves, I kind of see that, you know, in a lot of ways, maybe part of it will continue as is, meaning that there's going to be um, private practice groups that have, you know, uh, mixed kind of IR, DR, you know, practitioners. So, you know, they're covering at hospitals where that perhaps don't do as high-end type of um, interventional radiology. And so they need, you know, people who can sort of cover enough of the IR in those practices, but it's not necessarily all of the quote-unquote high-end IR. But I think, and what maybe I hope for to see is that um, there will be maybe more and more of these larger practices or with bigger sort of divisions of IR um, that really are able to provide, you know, truly comprehensive IR kind of, you know, head to toe. Um, One of the practices that, you know, kind of comes to mind, I don't know, a lot about it, you know, specifically just sort of what I've at least heard about um, is one of the groups in the Atlanta area uh, with Piedmont Health System down there. Um, they, they have a, a big practice, a very busy IR section. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of a model, for example, I think, you know, shows where, you know, a big and busy IR practice, you know, still within a radiology group, but nonetheless, you know, a a busy IR practice can look like. And so I think maybe there will be more of these either mergers of practices or, as another example, the VIR Chicago practice, which is an independent IR practice, um, but big enough and they cover multiple hospitals and they have truly a completely clinical and well-rounded type of practice. Uh, Maybe there will be more of those types of practices as well. So I think some things may kind of continue in the same direction. I think other things, whether it's mergers or separations of IR groups or kind of totally freestanding IR practices, or even in some cases, perhaps mixed multidisciplinary practices. So maybe it's a practice that has, you know, IR, vascular surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, whatever it may be maybe that becomes a a clinical practice unit. So I think that may be some of the other um, opportunities that exist. Yeah. 
that yeah it's interesting to to think about and we appreciate your uh your input on that uh, one of the hopes of this episode and, and future episodes on private practices to try and cover a lot of those different practice types mm-hmm. um you know that that you mentioned and that may one day exist more commonly sure well thanks for taking the time to come on the pod today dr Badlamudi. Um, we hope you'll come on again in the future yeah this is my pleasure it's really uh you know very nice to talk with both of you and you know i was very happy with the types of topics we had because i think you know hopefully this spur some interest and not just IR, but also kind of what's out there and including private practice IR. Um, So yeah, I'd I'd be very happy to come back again. We can talk about probably any number of topics. Thank you again, Dr. Vathamuni. I really appreciate the time you took. All right, that's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season where we'll be discussing the identity of an interventional radiologist, stroke, um, dialysis care, life in IR fellowship, tips, um, UFE, and more. Thank you again to our listeners for checking out the episode today. And if you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, uh, which is the sound of IR, um, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.